All right, here we are, another episode of Keel Conversations. I am your host, Mark Champagne, and it is my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game, personally and professionally. Today, I'm chatting with Gopi, the chief evangelist and brand marketing at Google. He works with Google sales teams and customers to help customer brands grow through digital marketing. He's also an avid yoga practitioner, triathlete, public speaker, global traveler, and Burning Man devotee. He has spoken at TEDx, Renaissance Weekend, the World Peace Festival, Wisdom 2.0, also hosts a TV program on cable and YouTube called Changemakers. But above all, he also is labeled as The Happy Human, which relates directly to his latest book, The Happy Human. Just a remarkable individual, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with all of you. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Minimalism Life. A simple life is one with less stress, less stuff, and more purpose. We love these guys because they publish awesome content on a weekly basis about minimalism as a tool to help you be more focused and feel more fulfilled. Check them out at minimalism.life. And don't forget, all of these awesome guests end up in our journaling app and mental fitness tool, Keo, to help guide you through your daily reflection. Take it for a spin in the Apple App Store and let us know what you think. Have the absolute best day yet. Gopi, the first question I ask everyone on the show is the same one, and uh, it's fairly loaded, but I, I, I know you, you, you've answered questions like this before, and it's, it's simply, who are you or wh- what defines you as, as a person? Well, thank you, Mark. And, uh, that is a simple question, but deeply profound. <laughs> and years ago, I, it struck me that this is a common question that is often asked, or the more practical common way of asking is, so what do you do? It's an introductory question. Mm -hmm. And usually people, including me, would answer it by your job, your title. And that becomes your definition. That becomes your identity. But I changed that after a conversation with a mentor and friend. And now my name card actually says the happy human. So when you say, who are you? I would say, I am or I want to be the happy human and help others, happiness being one of, yes, my friend taught me the highest values. So another way of looking at it, a few years ago, I said the three things that I want my life to be defined by or my highest values to be happiness, peace of mind, and freedom. Mm, I love that. Happily, I want to always have a sense of freedom and, uh, uh, and I want to live in peace. I, I love that. And you, you actually nailed why I asked that question is to, to avoid a, uh, a job title. Um, because, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, it's, our life is a lot more than, than the job title. So I, I'm curious, one thing I, I did want to ask you, what, what does the happy human mean to you? I mean, you've got the happy human uh, tagged to your name in, in, in several ways, um, including a lot of the presentations I've seen from, from you and, seen you speak at uh, Wahasu, then obviously your book. So what, what does it mean to you? Well, it's also the uh, title of my latest TEDx talk that just came out, and it's as a result of the book. But it originated from uh, um, a conversation I was having with my mentor and coach, 
and was around career planning and progression. And if you are in a corporate environment like I am, often you measure the metric you use is advancement, promotion, titles, levels that is very internal to the company, but somehow your sense of success and uh, impact and identity is tied with it. Uh, it's climbing the corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. And I was having this conversation with that coach, he said, he stopped me. His name is Stuart. Stuart stopped me and said, Gopi, you got this all wrong. I mean, you're so wrapped up in the conventional way of looking at titles, etc. What title would the Dalai Lama give you? And I reflected on that for a minute. And it was not like a tongue-in-cheek question Stuart is asking me. I had actually met His Holiness in Dharamsala a few months prior to that. And when I met him, what struck me was that here is a person who does not have any of the conventional trappings or markers of success and power as we define it in our regular society. As a monk, he has no money. He's supposed to be the temporal and spiritual head of Tibetan Buddhism, but he lives in exile, so that's been taken away from him. Uh, He doesn't really have a government to run. Uh, He's running a government in exile. And he didn't even have a passport. He's a refugee living in India since he was a child for more than 70 plus years. So even a sense of identity is taken away. He does not have a passport. He has a refugee certificate. That's a sense of identity as as a citizen. And yet, when you meet him, you're struck by his sense of joy, the way he laughs and sees the funny side of things. And both his wisdom and his wit are very striking. And I noticed that, and I thought about that, and I turned to Stuart and said, well, the title I would like for him to give me is The Happy Human. And Stuart put his hand on my shoulder and said, Gopi, let me tell you this. The Happy Human is a higher title than Senior Vice President, because the Senior Vice President (laughs) wants to be happy and may not know how. And often you could spend your entire career trying to earn the title climb up the ladder, and then discover that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall for you. The ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Wow. That, that, that's profound. And it, just as you're describing the, the situation, it, what was immediately coming to my mind is just an experience I've had in the, in the past. I did some volunteer uh, photography work in, in Senegal. And you know, again, kind of going back to that notion that, that you mentioned, um, how we define, you know, success and, and, and everything in North America. And there, you know, there I was in this, this village that in our, in our definition had nothing. Um, and the kids and the people there just had some of the biggest smiles, even to this day that I've ever seen. And it's, it's fascinating, right? It's, I guess it all comes down to perspective. Yes, exactly. Um, the one thing, you know, you've mentioned it twice now, uh, your coach. So when did, when did a coach come into your life or, or what was the catalyst to, to have someone like that, um, in your, in your world? And, and the reason I ask that, because, you know, we often identify or easily identify with coaches in sports and in most cases, at least the, the, the people that I speak with, um, we don't normally have a coach in the biggest game of all, which is life, right? So I'm curious to see how, you know, what, what tipped the, the scale for you and, and um, when, when did that person come into your life? 
Well, first of all, this person, when it's a coach and not, I have not hired him formally, the notion of a coach is more a friend and a mentor and acts as a coach about things. So sure. Stuart is a close personal friend. But I do use coaches extensively in multiple dimensions of my life. And uh, the first time when it struck me the power of having a coach was when I decided to run a marathon and I'd never run that distance before. I'd not even run a half marathon. I think the longest I'd run was about 10K. Okay. So this notion of uh, running 26 miles, and mind you, at the time when I was growing up, I didn't know anybody who ran ever ran a marathon. I thought only elite athletes in the Olympics ran it. Of course. Um, when I moved to the U.S. from India, I realized a lot more people were running marathons. And even at that time, the numbers were still small compared to today. It's become quite a popular sport and goal similar to like climbing Kilimanjaro or something. It's on a lot of people's bucket lists. So I joined team in training and they have an extensive coaching program. And the promise is if you show up and just do what the coach tells you for the entire season and raise funds for leukemia research, they will get you to the finish line, no matter what your, what your athletic ability is and what your starting point is. And sure enough, they did. I followed all the coaching principles they taught me, and week after week, I would go and show up for their runs, and and uh, it worked. I was able to get to the finish line of the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon. So that's wow. when I the power of what a coach can do. And since then, I have a coach for my speaking. I have somebody to help me with my singing and writing, etc. So multiple dimensions of my life. I, if I need help or improve in some area, I tap into someone. To help. And then I realized it is not such an unusual thing because going back to my cultural and uh, philosophical and spiritual heritage, there is this notion of a guru that is prevalent in Asian cultures in India. There's mm-hmm. someone who guides you on your spiritual path, and the guru's role is as a preceptor, as a coach. And same way I'd be studying and practicing and yoga for many years. And there's always you study through a lineage, there is a teacher who teaches you, and that's acts as like a coach as you continue to, in the traditional setting, yeah, you work with your teacher over a long period of time, and they're acting as a coach. The practice is still yours. You have to do the work. Yeah. But the coach is there to guide you, encourage you, course correct you. So now I've incorporated into many, many other dimensions of my life because I find it uh, useful in three ways. First, you tap into a large body of knowledge, experience, and wisdom that the coach has that you may not have. And second, someone like me needs a bit of structure, and the coach provides me that structure and the roadmap. And the third is you want someone to occasionally correct you, give you feedback, think of a dimension by which you could do things even better that you may not have thought of. So an example of that is one of my coaches in public speaking, uh, Prisian Vasilev, uh, was the 2013 world champion in public speaking. And... and and uh, Claudette O'Neill is my other coach, and she was a semifinalist in the World Championship uh, a few years ago. So I compete every year in the World Championship of Public Speaking. And at that level of competitiveness, a coach is highly useful. And I might give a speech in front of a live audience, and then we look at the video together, and then they give feedback about how to pack my emotions in, or how to cover the stage, or how to uh, pause and use the silence to let a question sit there. And these, I find they are able to point out nuances I would not be able to do on my own. 
and then I have to practice also hours and hours. And uh, the coaches are always there to help me with the practice and give me feedback and steadily improve. What have you? How has your in relation to your public speaking? Because I mean, I've seen I've seen your your TED talks, but then I've also seen you live, and um, you know, you're 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 an incredible speaker. You really capture uh, the audience from from an emotional perspective, which which is you know hard. I, I think hard to do. A lot of a lot of people um, attempt to do that, um, but it's not always successful. So. Uh, clearly, something's working uh, on, on that sense, and you're, you're, you've put in the work. What I'm I'm curious to understand from the from the coaching perspective, um, even before you stand on the stage, from from a, a mental standpoint, like what are some of the things you're doing to to prepare for um, a big keynote? The most important mark is really trying to take some time to think about. Who is the audience? Who are you talking to? And uh, ask a lot of questions about that at every opportunity to speak, whether it's a customer presentation at uh, work or a conference like the one we were at, the World Happiness Summit. Who is in the audience? And what is the second one is, what is the message I'm trying to deliver to them? And why does it matter to them? Why is it important for them to hear this message? And once that is established, then comes the, okay, now how do I package this message? And this way you think in terms of the structure of that speech, the stories you want to tell, how to make it animated and dramatic, and how to make it stick. Mm-hmm. And to do that, it's not a rational analytical process. Often many of these presentations tend to use graphs and numbers and research data, et cetera. They're trying to appeal to the brain and to the rational side of people. But I find in these kind of presentation speeches, people actually respond better to an emotional trigger. So you want to find an emotional way of telling them this uh, to make the point and get that message across. And one of the principles I've heard from uh, another former world champion of public speaking, Craig Valentine, is make a point and tell a story. Make another point and tell another story because the story makes that point come alive and it sticks. This is how human beings have Hmm. communicated historically. We tell our kids stories. We don't show them bullet point presentations. And we've sat around the campfire for thousands of years as as a tribe, as a culture, and we usually told uh, stories. And that's why every culture has its own stories passed on across generations. So those those become the structural elements. But you start off by thinking about who am I talking to? What is the audience? What is the message? And why should they care about this message? Well, thank you for sharing that. That's incredibly valuable. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people that are listening, whether it's public speaking or presenting in front of a, a group at work um, or, you know, um, podcasts, whatever the case may be, those principles apply right across um, various means. So appreciate the de- the detail on that. Um, I-, I do want to pivot a little bit, and, and it-, it does link to uh, what you mentioned about telling a, a powerful story. And, and you-, you have a very powerful story where there was a, uh, a point in your life um, where you really started to you were almost forced or, or, or yeah, I guess you could say forced to choose health over everything else. 
And um, you speak a lot about this. And I'd, I'd love to just set a bit of context for everyone listening on how you got to that point of prioritizing your your health as as number one. Are you talking about, the, are you asking me to talk about the incident itself? Yeah, just maybe provide a bit of context on um, how you got to that moment uh, in the hospital and to, to the point where you're, you now you have a lot of incredible practices that we'll get into uh, a little bit later that keep you, um, I think, at the top of your game from a, from a health perspective. Yeah, this happened last year on October 4th of 2018. At 4 p.m., I was supposed to be in the studio being interviewed on TV by ABC7. And it was about my new book, my new book had just launched. And instead, on October 4th, I chose not to be in the TV studio. I chose to do something else. I was lying on a stretcher in the emergency room of Stanford Hospital with an IV needle down my arm, rapidly losing consciousness. And and you might wonder, like, what happened? How did it end up? Like I said, I chose, I didn't actively <laughs> choose, no one was to be in the emergency room, but I'd made a set of lifestyle choices that led me to that situation. Because the prior 12 weeks leading up to that day, I traveled through nine cities in four countries and uh, not simply travel, Mark, but I was doing fairly intense activities like honoring the second year passing anniversary of my, or the first year anniversary of my father's passing, competing in the World Championship of Public Speaking, uh, launching the book. Yeah, doing my full-time job, which itself was demanding in and of itself, uh, producing a Kirtan music festival at uh, Esalen in Big Sur, California. And on top of all of that, uh, uh, fully participating and immersing myself in Burning Man. Um, (laughs) That's what pushed you over the edge. (laughs) Exactly. That alone can push you over the edge, right? So all of these are pretty demanding activities mentally, physically, emotionally, psychically. And fueled by ambition and this notion that doing more is better, I just kept powering through it. And in the process, the loss of nature fought back. Uh, and the loss of nature are immutable, even if they're inconvenient. And nature roared back at me and grounded me. And as a humbling reminder. And interestingly, I saw it as a complete act of compassion, nature doing something for Mother Nature, doing it for uh, my own sake. Hmm. The the symptom of this condition was that my, due to all the stress, the vagus nerve was getting irritated and that affects the diaphragm. The diaphragm was spasming and as a result, my breathing was erratic and uh, resulting in an external manifestation or symptom of a hiccup, chronic, uncontrollable hiccups that continue on through the day, through the night. So it won't let you sleep. It won't let you speak. As a result, I couldn't speak coherently. Oh, uh, I couldn't wow. repeat the sentences. I would, I mean, you could understand me, but I would sputter or hiccup in the middle of a sentence. So it is okay for a conversation. It's painful, but I couldn't get up on stage and speak. Well, of course. It was uh, like an athlete with a sprained ankle. Now he can't run anymore and he's completely grounded. So I was like an athlete with a sprained ankle. It was not life-threatening, but enough to take me out of the game. And I canceled 16, uh, speaking engagements, both in part of my job and outside. I tried to, with the condition, power through it. And the last one, uh, through my client presentations, it was hard. I was speaking at Singularity University, and the audience grew increasingly alarmed. 
seeing me like that. So to get my attention, nature took away one of my most cherished skills, talents, and capabilities, the power of speaking in front of an audience. And there was uh, a sweet irony to it all, because later I was reflecting, saying, this is how well-intentioned parents get the attention of a child when the child does not listen to good advice and throws a tantrum. Mm. So if it bed early or if it doesn't eat vegetables and instead insists on ice cream and staying up late in the night, the parents will say, I am going to take away your favorite toy. You're not going to get it back till you listen to us. And it's exactly what nature did. So it said, I, we can't seem to get your attention. We'll take this one skill away so that you'll pause, take a break and pay attention to what really matters. So hmm. with the three-year-old in the house, I relate. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So uh, one question I'd love to ask just in relation to that, because, you know, from the outside, you're, you're still speaking, you're, you still have a, you know, pretty high profile uh, position at Google, you've, you've, you know, obviously have the recent TED talk, your book, all of that. So how have you been managing what nature was throwing your, your way? Like, what are some of the things that You've been um, implementing in your life to not end up on that at stre- on that stretcher again. Yeah. So the solution to that was fairly simple. Uh, it's not something I'd known before. I'd seen all the research and evidence. I even talked about it in my book, The Happy Human. The challenge for all of us, Mark, is it's not our lack of wisdom; it's our inability to sometimes forget that wisdom. Hmm. and I get carried away. I think it's that's what gets you into trouble. So what led me, put me in the path to recovery and ultimately happiness and good health was a simple formula that my health coach, I have a health coach too, uh, talk of coaching, uh, that my health coach at the South Asian Heart Center had taught me. And her name is Anita. And the, and the formula that they follow at the South Asian Heart Center to reduce incidence of uh, diabetes and heart problems among the Asian populations, the South Asian population, is to make them practice a lifestyle that's centered around taking your meds every day. Taking your meds every day. And by meds, they're not talking about a white pill in a pill box. The meds that they're referring to is a simple acronym standing for M for daily meditation, E for exercise, some kind of movement, D for diet, as in smart, healthy, conscious nutrition, and S for sleep, for rest and recovery. And none of the four elements were new to me. I'd been taught that I practice in some level all my life. The trick is to be disciplined and consistent about it because the body needs daily sustenance and renewal. And in the midst of a busy, frenzied schedule, and you throw in travel, especially international travel, and a lot of being in airplanes, and your rhythm gets thrown out of the way, and all of these things get affected. It's easy to say, next three days, I'm skipping the exercise, or eat a little unhealthy because it's more convenient to grab something on the go as you're racing to your flight, and your sleep cycles are all disturbed because you're in different time zones and different days and you don't give enough time for the body to rest and recover. So that's what led to it. And the incident was a reminder to what I had known, what several friends of mine had always talked, mentioned. I even talk about in my book 
but it's one thing to go from theory to actual practice. Sure. So this just reminded me to be more disciplined about the practice and make it non-negotiable. So how do I do it is a couple of different approaches, Mark, uh, assuming you want me to go into that. The, that was my next, my, my yeah. question literally was going to be, what are the non-negotiables? <laughs> so Every day write down in the morning the five most important things I want to get done that day. So there is an intentionality to the day. And I write that down in my productivity planner. And also I keep the number small so that I'm thinking of the five biggest projects I need to do. The idea being, if I can get these five done, then everything else is easy or I can get more other things done. If you can't get through the five, then don't worry about the rest. They're not important now. Sure. And now I made it a daily habit to write number one is a constant item every single day. Take your meds. Okay? As just as a reminder so that it's written down and it's like front and center. And I say, it is my most important goal. Now, some days I might be better at following than others, but at least it's there as an intention and a goal. The second thing is then to block off time on my calendar for some of these activities. And I've been pretty good now lately with my E for exercise uh, aspect okay. in terms of blocking. In fact, right now, Eunice is speaking, my meeting schedule is moving around. I just wrote down, in, I put into my calendar, yoga, 6 p.m. It was originally 4 p.m. I moved it to 6, but I know there's a 4 p.m. class, there's a 6 p.m. class, and I'm determined to get to it. And um, Do you have block scopy in, like, for you to do your work and whatnot? Is there a certain time in the day where you're you're blocking that time? Correct, yeah. I call it work blocks because I do need some time on my own, sitting at my desk, powering through, doing deep thinking and extended periods of work. So yes, I do that. No, And I set up meetings with myself and I do it for all these aspects also, okay. including for exercise of meditation. So there's a better chance. I've So one area I struggle with still with all of the work and trying to get things done and have integrity towards your commitments and getting back to people is end of the days when things slow down, the meetings um, the back-to-back meetings end, and you use that time to get caught up, and yeah. then you can run very late, and that starts impacting your sleep cycles. So I've been trying an experiment, and I'll confess I'm still to make it widely successful, and that is rather than set an alarm to wake you up in the morning, I've set an alarm or a reminder in my calendar to go to bed in the evening. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then you wake up naturally when all your body's rested. Okay. Except that, that the block I put is so early for my schedule that <laughs> most, most days I've been violating it. But it's there. It's in bold red in my calendar. And uh, I hope tonight I'll be able to follow that structure to myself. I will be sending some good sleep vibes your way. Um, I'd imagine yoga though, um, at the end of the day like that, and like today is a good example, right? It seemed like it's been, uh, already a pretty busy day. Um, is, is yoga a pretty consistent thing at the end of the day for you or, and then when you do it, it uh, I can only imagine that probably gives you, um, a good recharge to, you know, as you're going home to the family and whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah. So it is a part of my core practice and by yoga, I'm assuming, I'm assuming you're referring to the physical practice of 
asanas or postures on a blue mat. Um, so yeah, I don't do it every single day, but every week there are multiple times I do. Okay. Uh, Monday evening, 530, I always teach and I've taught for the last 13 years every single Monday. Wednesday evenings, I then do practice with someone else leading the class so I can tune my mind out and just focus on my practice. And the other two days, I do interval training, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Okay. And then Friday again, I'll go back to my yoga routine. And then the weekends, I try to do a longer aerobic stretch of a swimming or a bike ride. So that's how it sort of fit. And then it got a, it's got a rhythm. It's got certain things I do on certain fixed days. So Tuesday, Thursday, 3.30 is my default block for interval training. And if for some reason, client meetings or something, I have to move it, then I move to the next slot, 4.30 instead of 3.30. But sort of my mind is set. Tuesday, okay. Wednesday afternoons is my interval block. Monday, 5.30, now for 13 years, has been the yoga teaching slot. And therefore, it's a fixed item in my calendar Then it's easy to build my life around it. So I don't take any social invitations for Monday because it's my yoga teaching day. Of so course. certain like that that I've built in. Same way with everything from drinking water to plant-based food. Uh, one more habit is I just try to walk as much as possible everywhere and uh, around the campus between meetings, etc. And I track how many steps. And these days with the kind of technology that we carry with us are smart watches and smartphones, et cetera, it's helping you count. So I have a simple goal of 10,000 steps a day. And it's easy to monitor even when you travel, et cetera. So sure. towards the end of the day, if I've done, I've got only 8,000 steps done, it's easy to just walk out of the door or on the hotel block or something and just come back and get your 10,000. And you have a sense of accomplishment and again, integrity towards a goal. Well, it's these small things that just, they, they continue to add up, right? And it's almost... Um... I mean, there's a physical benefit there, but it's almost the the, the mental benefit on that is is almost even more powerful, right? To actually get you to go and and commit to that and, and do it. Absolutely, yeah. And what? Just uh, I'll move on from the routine in a minute, but I, I'm curious when when you are traveling. Um, obviously, a little bit harder to keep up um, some of those appointments. Like what? So which which ones are the absolute non negotiables if you're abroad? Among these things, so I'll try to see, like, even uh, even off the four items, can I fit in three or so each okay. day, well, if not all four, and I might change the change the routine or habits a little bit. So, for example, from traveling, I use the time in the plane from the time it taxis till it's about ten thousand feet and service starts. Uh, Ten or 20,000 feet and actual service starts. Things are quiet. All the electronics are turned off. I use it to meditate on the plane. So it's just become a habit. Takeoff time is meditation. Gotcha. Um, or do even like a couple of minutes of yoga, which is a few sun salutations in the room. All You don't need any equipment. All you need is your body, your breath, your awareness and some intention and, uh, and a hotel towel. And you can still fit that in. And same way with food, even being more aware, because it's when you travel that you can get really straight far away from yeah. your uh, nutrition discipline. So actively seeking out as much as possible plant-based diet as close to its natural state and drinking lots of water. 
The water's the tough one. I, I find uh, for the longest, uh, it was last year, uh, for, I'd say for probably a month straight, I had a 2 p.m. reminder that would pop up, am I hydrated? Um, and then, it, you know, then it started to become a, a habit. But it's, I, I find it, fat, like I, I noticed this personally, uh, and I think people just don't even realize it, that we're, we really don't drink enough water. And when you start drinking enough, it, there's so many benefits that you can immediately start to feel. Yeah, exactly. And a simple thumb rule is take your body weight in pounds. So let's say if you're 150 pounds, divide it by two, that's 75 pounds, and drink that many ounces. That's 75 ounces. Okay. Is the thing ideal, at least, can drink even more, but ideally. So take your body weight in pounds, divided by two, and that tells you the number of ounces. So I keep a metal water bottle that's 25 ounces, and that tells me in a day I have to refill and drink it three or four times. And that becomes a useful uh, benchmark for me. So while traveling, I always travel with that metal water bottle, fill it at the airport just before you board the plane. And then when I get off, also again, fill it up. And then I can keep, easy to keep saying, yeah, I've used it three times or four times. And whether I've hit the number. You know what's, as I continue to listen to you speak, um, a, I'm really resonating with a lot of these mini little, highly impactful, um, I, I, I don't want to say hacks because that uh, has a weird connotation these days, but just practices or routines um, or, or items in your routine, I should say. But I feel like the theme is you're, you're very structured and you're, you're setting yourself up for success right? You're taking a lot of the guesswork out of, okay, I know I need to refill this water bottle, you know, four times um, versus uh, like how many times, how many cups of water did I have? I don't know. It, it just, they're small things, but as, as you, as you continue to go, I, I'm just seeing this, this, um, this theme developing. Have you always been like that Gopi or is that something that's evolved over the years? You know, it's more recently, and it's the thing I talk about in my first book, The Internet to the Internet, and also in the TEDx talk that I gave in the same topic. I found, uh, the, I found that solution to a lot of these kind of lifestyle and mind-body kind of issues already exist. We don't need to solve them, Mark. Meaning yeah. human beings who have gone before us have experimented with their body, with their mind, with their food, and left us the operating manual. They've tested it out and said, eat this, don't eat this. Ginger and turmeric are good for use. Maybe things, other root crops that grew under the ground are not so great. So we have the operating manual. Um, but the challenge is to build all these things into our life. And this is where we struggle, especially in a modern uh, um busy life. I found that the place where I had done it most successfully, meaning stuck to these practices best, was when I was in a retreat center. So I was like at a place like at the Shivananda Ashram. In an ashram setting, they have a very set routine. The bell goes up at 5.30. You wake up at wake up and sit for meditation as a group at 6. 6.30, you start chanting. At 10, 8 o'clock, you do two hours of yoga and pranayama every single day, seven days a week. So when I was staying there, I followed it very easily. You have a sense of community, you have a sense of structure, and uh, and the routine is unchanged. So you don't have to wrestle with it every single day. But when you come out, obviously your life structure is different and different days can be uh, 
very different depending on what's going on and you're traveling, etc. And it's I slowly came to the conclusion, or I'd say it rapidly came to the conclusion, <laughs> that my best chance of following a lifestyle I want with some sort of integrity towards these principles we're talking about is to build in tiny daily routines because that's what the ashram provided, tiny daily routines. And I said, my everyday life, how can I build tiny daily routines? So all the things I'm telling you are tiny daily or weekly routines that allow me to hold on to some of these. I love it. And I think what I love about it, and, uh, you know, I'll speak for the audience listening. It's just, these are, these are practical things that we can all pick up and implement, um, with a certain level of ease, right? They're not instru- you know, insurmountable tasks to, to take on, which blocks a lot of people, obviously. And I totally resonate with, um, you know, uh, you know, us not inventing these things, you know, as, as we've been bringing, um, a journaling practice or a reflection practice um, to, to the market and trying to modernize it and make the content relatable. It's, it's fascinating because I mean, we, we have not, we're not inventing questions. We have definitely not invented the practice. It's been around for thousands of years. And, and you, you actually met um, uh, my brother-in-law and co-founder Sine, who is originally from India and, and just even going through this experience, uh, having lived in North America, most of his life, he's like, lot of these things I grew up with. It's crazy that now they're just coming to light, you know? Exactly. Yeah. People didn't pay attention or even rejected it. And now all of a sudden, everyone is waking up to the fact that these are powerful techniques and, uh, and we have been gifted these. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Last last question for you. Go before we 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 wrap and and I ask everyone this question as well because these these prompts are then loaded in in the app to help people stimulate their their own reflection. Um, and the and the question is simple. It's just you know, are there three reflective questions that you find yourself uh, asking to yourself either on a frequent basis or during big life changing events that you found have have been really helpful for for you? Yeah. Um... When, I, when I'm up against a difficult situation, which does come every now and then, it does for everybody, that's just the rhythm and nature of our lives on this planet, the three questions that I ask myself, and Stuart, my friend and coach, he's the one who taught me when I was originally, even 14 years ago, I was going through a difficult uh, life circumstance. The three questions are, what is the greater good that can come out of the situation? Hmm. What is the greater good that can come out of the situation? The second question is, the situation is affecting me and it's affecting the people around me, either directly or indirectly. How can I respond with compassion and understanding towards everyone who is being impacted by the situation? Hmm. And especially towards myself, because we tend to come down hardest on ourselves. So especially to myself and to the others around me, how can I respond with compassion and understanding? And the third question is, I may not be able to control everything that is unfolding around me, but one choice I do have is what is my response to this situation? Yeah, that's powerful. So what response will I choose? What response will I choose? So that five years from now, when I'm talking to you, Mark, I can look back on that situation and be able to confidently say I responded with grace and dignity 
to the best of my ability. These, these are fantastic and very, very powerful. And what I really love about that last question, um, you know, it, it helps people put the, the pause in between the, the action, right. And we, we didn't get into it, but I, that was a, a topic, um, you know, maybe for another day, which just the importance of, of a pause, right. And, and everything that, that we're interacting or any type of activity we have in life, um, because we're just we're in a society that is so fast and always in reaction mode between the stimulus and the response what choice will you make of of course yeah. um at the end of the day gopi what what truly makes you smile what what lights you up on an everyday basis to be able to say yes to the following did i love well did i love well and did i let go of things that do not serve me anymore i love it Look at that. We just got a bonus three questions in there. <laughs> Amazing. Well, th- you know, I have to thank you um, on behalf of obviously uh, myself and everyone over here on our team, but everyone listening for your your constant uh, dedication to spreading your message, your story, and, you know, you putting yourself first when it comes to your health, because ultimately it's benefiting a lot of other people uh, around the world. So thank you for, for doing that. Thank you, Mark. Pleasure talking to you. And uh, thanks for having me on the Cure podcast. Yes, you made it to the end of the conversation. Thank you so much for your attention. And if you enjoyed the chat, leave us a little love wherever you're listening. Stars or views, they go a long way. Don't forget, you can find all of these guests along with a ton of powerful reflective prompts in our digital journaling app, Kyo, K-Y-O. Search it in the Apple App Store and it'll pop up. Wishing you the absolute best in your mental fitness and an incredible day.